Welcome to the Medical Republic podcast. My name is Felicity Nelson. Today I'm speaking with Gid Myrovitz-Katz about whether the COVID-19 crisis will ever end and what data do we need to collect in order to figure this out. Gid is an epidemiologist. Uh, welcome to the show, Gid. It's good to be back on, Felicity. I think what's really worrying people is they feel like this is an artificial reduction in cases and that it's just going to spike as soon as you lift any of the restrictions. Is that what is likely to happen? Uh, It's unlikely that we will fully eradicate the disease because, I mean, it hasn't happened anywhere, even with crazy restrictions, uh, worse or higher levels than ours. So it's why we would eradicate it, I'm not sure. But I think it's likely that we will maintain... If we don't fuck up, um, it's likely that we will maintain this level for quite a long period of time. What do you mean by this level? So, well, I mean, if you look at uh, South Korea, for example, they've maintained at about a 1% to 2% daily increase in the number of cases, a maximum of 1% or 2% daily increase in the number of cases for now, I think about two months altogether, uh, six weeks. Mm. Um, I'd have to look at the graphs to be sure, but it's about that. And so if we, and that means a very rough linear increase in cases per day of about 100, I think, for their uh, total case numbers. So they're now at 10,738. And when they started this kind of linear uh, increase, they were at about 8,000. So still, the numbers are still growing. It's small numbers, so it's less than 100 a day. It's about, I think, about uh, 30, 40 cases a day on average. But that's not... Um, uh, but that hasn't stopped. So they've, they've, you know, they've flattened their curve, but they haven't completely uh, eliminated the curve, squashed the curve, whatever they wanted to call it in New Zealand. Mm. So is that what you think is going to happen in Australia? So instead of it, um, I mean, we have to define which curve we're talking about here, but <laughs> instead of the daily infection rate dropping to zero and then just staying at zero, you're saying it's going to drop to like, you know, 10 cases per day and just sort of slide along at 10 cases per day i think if we look anything can happen but if we extrapolate from what has happened everywhere else in the world and when i say that i mean china south korea taiwan those places that have had this disease for a long time but have locked down and then kind of uh had that lockdown in place or those restrictive measures in place for a long time you see that the disease is not completely eliminated but it uh peters along at a relatively low rate and you just kind of see this linear uh, slow linear increase um, of of a small number of cases per day and in australia i mean it's hard to say exactly what that will be but my suspicion is it will be you know we're actually currently seeing more like 20 average on average 20 cases per day in the country that that feels reasonable to me but i mean the exact number is hard to say so the challenge is when we implemented all the restrictions, we implemented everything as a package measure. And that is hard um, for determining causality. And what I mean by that is we, we put everything in place within one week. And so we don't know which restriction was the most effective and we don't know which restriction was the least effective. And so, for example, we've, we limit, in New South Wales, uh, we're limiting the number of people who can exercise or go out together to two. Now, that's an arbitrary number. It, it's 
chosen, I think they were going to do it just uh, as one person, but instead they said, well, because of fears of violence and whatever, they, they'd have two people walking side by side. Um, but is that the right number? Maybe we could increase that to four with no increased risk uh, to infection generally. We don't really know, and this is the challenge. What we're going to have to do over time, and I suspect this is what's going to happen in Australia, and, and it is happening across the world, is slowly lift certain restrictions, leave a little bit of a gap, and see if infections rise. And if they do rise, then maybe that restriction was necessary. And if they don't rise, then maybe actually the population has is fine without them. Well, there's the other factor, which is, are people actually complying with the restrictions? <laughs> <laughs> so you have two measures there. It's quite, that's a little bit more complicated. Yeah, look, I think um, in general, based on the data that we've seen, most people are, are complying with the most restrictions, in Australia at least. I mean, across the world, I can't say country by country. Are they? Because when I was out on the weekend, there were some people not complying. That's absolutely true. Through the park. <laughs> Look, that that's absolutely true. There are people not complying with the restrictions, but uh, like I will go out for a run by myself, and I will see maybe two groups of four walking around. Right. So I and I note them, and I see yes, definitely those are people not complying with the restrictions. But it's a bit of confirmation bias. Because now we're looking for people who are doing the wrong thing, you know, this, these evil individuals breaking quarantine. Um, and so every one of those you see, you think, well, that, that's evidence that the whole population is doing the wrong thing. But actually, if you look at kind of the metrics of what percentage of people are moving as they usually do, and even just the number of cases per day, it, it seems very unlikely that more than a small proportion of people are um, breaking the rules that have been imposed. So what you mean by that is like if you look at cars traveling around Sydney streets or Melbourne streets, it's significantly dropped off. Um, yeah. Compared, which shows you that there's been like a city-wide effect of just reduction in going out of your house. Yeah, cars moving, public transport being used, even I think walking and, and people grouping together. There have been, I've seen people... Uh, tweet out these metrics i mean how robust that is i don't know but i th i think ultimately we would see it in the case numbers if there were significant pe proportions of people um breaking the rules and well this is the thing we w would we because if people aren't getting tested anymore then we wouldn't <laughs> so that's another okay so factor. <laughs> well the testing so firstly australia has an incredibly good testing rate and i think people don't quite recognize how fantastic it is i mean we've tested i think nearly six hundred thousand people um or we've run nearly six hundred thousand tests in a country of 24 million seven hundred people it's a staggering number of tests we also we've got a relatively low rate of positive tests so our positive rate is 1.3 percent in australia um, what that means is that most of the tests we run don't find someone with coronavirus and that means that it is relatively, relatively unlikely that there is a large um, group of people out there in the community who are infected that we don't know about because most of the people who we test, even if this is a selected population, end up not having the virus. 
And then there's another metric you can look at, which is hospitalizations and deaths. Because ultimately, if there were lots of people who are out there being sick, they you would see the most acute of them coming into hospital and getting tested and dying. And because we don't see many of those, and because our current death rate is so low, it's reasonable to assume that there's probably not a very large group of people out in the community, even if our testing rate has dropped. And that death rate isn't increasing either, and the hospitalization rate isn't increasing dramatically. It's pretty stable from what I have seen. No, indeed, yeah. If anything, I would say, well, the death rate uh, will creep up slowly. So that's one thing to note, because... Um, the death rate will always lag a bit behind the testing numbers because people get tested at the onset of their infection, but the average time to death is um, something like uh, 15 or 16 days. So you get, they get tested after two days, but they then you, you watch this two-week lag and the numbers tick up. Um, <clears throat> but the hospitalization rate, as you say, hasn't really increased, um, particularly in New South Wales, as far as I know. Um, the numbers are quite small, in fact, which is impressive. And the reason that hospitalization rate is quite interesting to look at is because you can't really, there's no way of hiding the fact that you've got a really severe disease. Like you have to go to hospital if you're that sick. So it's not like someone who's in their twenties and has a bit of a sniffle and decided not to get tested and therefore is it being counted. Um, that's a sort of hard statistic. We know, you know, that hospitalization rate reflects the community transmission. Um, and if there was some invisible transmission happening, that hospital rate would go up and we'd know that there was something going on. Yes, absolutely. I think one of the big questions that people have right now is how long do I have to live like this? Um, and the fears that people are sort of whispering is that any um, lifting of restrictions of any kind is going to see an exponential increase in COVID-19, which will then cause, you know, a complete lockdown again and that businesses aren't going to be able to, you know, open um, and that people who are unemployed will stay unemployed and that it will just sort of maybe you'll see this wave effect, you know, where the cases go up and then they go down again when the restrictions have come in and then they go up again. Um, and I was sort of thinking about it. It's like, you know, a tsunami coming at us and we've just managed to cut it up into a few waves. Um, is that is that true or are people just, you know, a bit scared over nothing? Like what what's the future look like? Um, goes into the crystal ball (laughs) (laughs) yeah look i hate making predictions um so damn you for for doing this no i I think like the question is what would you need to know in order to make a prediction is more interesting because no one can really predict what's going to happen yeah well i think um in terms of what countries are likely to do in the future um i think it will be a bit of a balancing act absolutely and i think that We have to be prepared for that because, as I said, we're not certain what worked and what didn't. And we know that the combined bundle of of interventions had some effect because, you know, people stopped getting infected. But picking, picking apart exactly what caused that and what was more effective and what was less effective is going to be something that's going to take some time and will require some experimentation and while other countries are definitely going to be informative there, they may not even tell us exactly what we need to know because the Australian situation is obviously um, unique in some ways. So what other countries are going to do in terms of relaxing their restrictions might not necessarily um, be important to us. Depends. 
but I think if I if I were to gaze into a crystal ball, I would say probably what you will see in the future is the government relaxing restrictions, probably starting with small measures, so taking little steps and um, having a lag. So they'll relax something, have a lag, see if cases increase, if, and if they do, maybe uh, re-implement that restriction. Um, and if they don't, then perhaps uh, start try thinking about what else they can relax. So for example, um, New South Wales is recommending that schools go back. Now that's a fairly big uh, difference to a lot of people's lives and it may have some impact on the number of cases and it may cause them to increase. And I suspect what will happen is if cases do start to increase after schools uh, go back, then um, they probably will be uh, closed again. Something like that. But is this sustainable? You know, can it go on for the the number of months that we need it to go on for well for I us think... to find an, an, an end to this I mean, <laughs> do you know what i mean so like you you were taking away one restriction and then maybe bringing it back again and taking it away another one but you're still overall got massive restrictions on the economy and people's lifestyles and behavior um you know seemingly endlessly because this disease as soon as you lift the restrictions seems to take off again so i mean i know this is what everyone's asking and no one has an answer but you know is, is that really feasible to just lift one and see what happens and then lift another because like we're still going to be stuck in this infinity loop of having some restrictions forever surely until we get a vaccine <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, okay. So firstly, I think Australia is very well placed in, in many ways. And that, that gives us the opportunity to experiment a bit, I think. And that's likely why I, it's part of the reason why I think that we will be doing this, this kind of back and forth. Um, I think other countries where they were much harder hit may not have as much of an option because um, they've had really extreme issues. So they're probably going to be more restricted for longer in many ways. Um, because relaxing restrictions will be a bigger issue. But, uh, you know... Right. So in Australia, we could do things like, you know, if if sending all the kids back to school doesn't lift the COVID-19 cases significantly, we might add another one, which is, okay, you can have your friends over for dinner. Okay, you can go back to your office, but you still can't have, you know, AFL games and you still can't go to nightclubs or whatever. <laughs> you know, just... Yeah. And you can't go on beaches and, and spread disease that way. Is that is that the kind of uh, thing you're imagining? Like some of the restrictions are lifted so that people have a little bit of easier movement and socialisation, but, you know, those big disease-spreading events that um, we've seen uh, really get cases shooting up, those ones won't be coming back for a long time. Yeah, look, my suspicion is, and look, this is just my personal opinion, um, that <laughs> it's it's hard as i said hard to look into the future but what's likely to be the case is that we will probably have some restriction um some form of social distancing for quite some time it mm. is unlikely that we will completely relax the restrictions um in the near future i mean the federal government has basically said for the next six months and i think that's a fairly realistic timeline i mean that was a month ago but even so september seems to me to be quite a likely time for some of these to be reviewed. Um, before then, I don't think that it's likely that we will, as you say, that we'll have things like um, AFL games happening. 
Mm. But then, um, like, in six months' time, aren't we in exactly the same situation in terms of epidemiology? We have a population that mostly hasn't had COVID-19, so they're not immune. Um, so as soon as this disease takes off, it will just complete, you know, continue to spread exponentially. Isn't that no. going to be the same situation in six months' time as it is now? I don't think so at all, because um, the uh, there are lots of factors that impact how infectious the disease is. And it's not, um, a lot of people look at a disease and say, well, how infectious it is, is, it is, it, it is, sorry, how infectious it is, is all to do with the droplets and the aerosols and whatever. But a large part of the R naught is to do with the behavior of the population. And my suspicion is that in, after six months of practicing every day of washing our hands, of not, uh, going too close to people, of um, you know being careful about our behavior in so many ways that the R naught will drop significantly even in a population that doesn't hasn't reached the herd immunity threshold. Really? I, yeah. Is that, has that ever happened before? Well, in the history I mean, of the world, because people love hugging each other and they love kissing <laughs> each other and they love shaking hands and it's really hard to stand quite far away from people. Um, it's just like almost inbuilt into humans. I just don't know if you know well, we can maintain this behavior for some time but you know unless you're a hypochondriac i think it's very hard to keep it up um maybe to keep up the same level as we're doing now but i mean south korea so if i look at the at their curve they kind of stopped the exponential phase in early march and it's now late april so it's probably been about seven weeks and they've managed to keep it up without uh, after, sorry, they did have a lot of closures, but they reopened a lot of things. They sent kids back to school and they reopened a lot of those areas that were closed. And they're doing okay. So, I mean, it's, as I said, you know, it's hard to say what's going to happen in the future, but my suspicion is that um, the behavior of the population is going to change quite a bit. Um, and also, I mean, the, you've also got these things like the tracking app. Well, I personally don't place a huge amount of faith in the app as someone who's researching apps. Um, I, I do find it unlikely that it's going to be the defining factor unless there are more, um, more incentives for people to use it than just kind of community spirit. But I will say that that might have an, a, a small impact and all of these things together you know, um, behaviors that people will build up over the next month or two, the app, uh, maybe other measures that the government will put in place to encourage social distancing, um, all of that together might reduce the R0 to a, a place where um, even if we relax some of the other restrictions, we won't see a huge outbreak. It, but it's hard to say. It really is. Mm, I guess what's really promising is that we're tracking this so closely and you can see just looking at the graph how much control we have as a society over this. So just by modifying our behavior, we can crash this curve, you know, yeah, absolutely. a few weeks. So if we wanted to, if it takes off again, we can just crash it again. Um, it's just, you know, what the question everyone's asking is what economic impact does that have? And is this going to, you know, wipe out an entire generation because we've all lost our jobs? Um <laughs> No, and, and that's the question people are asking is, is, is this sustainable um, for a whole world to do this? Or do we at some point just have to give in to this disease that's going to, you know, either, either we have to create a vaccine or we just have to sort of, you know, let it run its course is what people are saying. 
I mean, I, I think people who call for the, for that sort of letting the disease run its course don't really aren't being realistic. I have to say, because um, if you if you have a large proportion of your population uh, sick or dying, um, then the economy isn't going to be doing that great either. So it's people who po- pose this. I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy of the economy. Um, versus the lockdowns where if you don't if you get rid of the lockdown suddenly the economy will be back and fine again i just don't see that being accurate and i think most economists agree with that perspective you know there there was a large uh, group of economists wrote to the australian government saying please don't relax the restrictions that will destroy the economy um the people who are calling for the end to lockdowns so that the economy can flourish to me, seem to be mostly uh, right-wing commentators um, or people whose stocks are being harmed. So, you know, billionaires saying, oh, well, we're destroying the economy. But really what they mean is my stocks when they say the economy. None of the things that are happening now, I think, have happened in human history, really. Um, we've never had a coordinated global response to anything. We've, I mean, in 1918, the Spanish flu... Um, we barely even had coordinated countrywide responses. Uh, you know, the world was very different in 1918. And the same is true for pretty much every major disease that's come out. This is, this is the first time we're seeing 90% of what's happening, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and that makes it very hard for anyone to predict anything. Yeah, so many unknowns. But also I think it makes it very hard for people to know that this is the absolute best thing we could have done. I mean, it certainly looks like it from the graph right now of COVID-19 infections going down, but, you know, it, it's it's hard to know whether we could have done better. Um, I mean, you can always do better. Tried, tried it before. <laughs> there, it, we absolutely have not done the best thing possible that we could have done. I, what, you would know. Been, what would have been the best thing possible? Like, it seems to know. have been timed pretty well, in Australia at least. Globally... Look, New York is a mess. London is a bit of a mess. Italy is a mess. Um, I mean, no, but yeah. I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. What was, <laughs> what if China had closed its borders on January the first? They should and have done that. No one out of the country. <laughs> really great. <laughs> I, I had an I had a Facebook argument with a with a very uh, frustrating and ignorant person who said exactly that. And I mean, my point the the thing is, if you based your decision on the what we knew in January, then you wouldn't do that. And the fact that hindsight is twenty twenty changes nothing. Mm. But I also think when you look back, you know, on twenty twenty, um, yeah. you you'll be able to see which countries handled this really expertly and which countries totally failed. And I think it would be make me proud if Australia was one that you know was more in the expert side of things. Um, I think that's than, true. But, I mean, we're going to have decades of research unpicking what happened here. Yeah. It's going to, it's just it's so crazy so watching it unfold before your eyes, like watching these graphs, you know, respond to interventions that have been rolled out, um, you know, like clockwork, exactly what we were expecting to happen. And now it's, the question is what happens next and no one knows. <laughs> it's really scary. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I think... I think there's a reasonable certainty in in Australia that what happens next is we will see a gradual easing of lockdown in some ways. But mm. what that what exactly that means is hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. I doubt we'll hard. take a and Spanish approach. 
because they. I just wonder if community communities are going to be quite as enthusiastic in four months' time. You know, people people are very willing to give up a lot um, and sacrifice a lot, but you know, are they going to give up? seeing their parents on their parents' birthdays and seeing their grandmas and, like, weddings. And just think about it. So many things have been put on hold. How long can that go for, you know? Absolutely true. Um, I mean, some of those things we've already missed, but... Um... <laughs> That's true. A lot of people have got married and just gone... Yeah. It's... Well, they've delayed their weddings or all sorts of things. But, I I mean, I mean, it, it kind of comes down to what we value, Um to an extent and the challenge i mean i i had a cousin distant cousin who i didn't know very well uh who passed away in new york from covid oh that's sad i'm sorry yeah i mean i i'd never met him but uh, i know his sister Mm. and it's you know i think when aside from some very prominent right-wing commentators whose opinions i do not value um most people can look at New York and say, well, we really don't want that to happen here. Um, where, you know, the, the I think the current estimate in New York is, what is it? A 0.2% of the entire city has died um, with only 20% infected, less than 20% potentially. You know, that is mm. a staggering figure. Yeah, um, I'd rather miss a few birthdays than have that because that is a scar on a whole you know generations of people will be affected by that absolutely that is going to change the soul of new york i'm sure yeah Uh, like recovering from that is going to take a while and madrid as well apparently 0.2 percent of the population the entire population of the city this is what someone's told me i haven't actually checked that figure but it's it's huge so i think that despite what some people are saying we can all agree that we don't want to be in new york um, we don't want mm. that to happen in sydney so while there will certainly be um some objections the longer this lasts um i think as long as we can kind of proportionally relax quarantine in a way that allows people to do the most important things then it's likely that we will be able to maintain it for quite a long period of time mm. What really is getting to me is there are all these um, patients who are not receiving care because of this catastrophe that's unfolding. Um, so I was heard a story about stroke victims who are, you know, trying to go through stages of recovery, but they're just basically being ejected from hospital early before their families are set up at home because there's just no room for them. Um, and so that you know these they've gone through a horrible experience and now they're, you know being set out to the community before they're ready. Like, can you imagine how awful that would be just getting no support um, that you were expecting? Um, And I'm sure that's just one example of, you know, hundreds or thousands of different instances where people aren't getting the care that they were, you know, expecting to get. Oh, absolutely. Well, um, I will share with you a sneak peek of some research that I've been working on uh, for the last week. Exclusive. Uh, Exclusive (laughs) indeed. Well, it is. Um, we have been looking at the rate of people with diabetes uh, attending various services. So this is uh, hospitals and general practices. Um, and in our data set, the proportion of people with diabetes... Att- so firstly, the number of attendances is down a lot. And that's true across the board in hospitals and general practitioners. Uh, about 
uh, 15%, um, which is pretty huge. But also the rate of people with diabetes attending has dropped dramatically. So in the hospital, it's nearly half. And what that means is that although there's been a relatively small drop in the, um, in the number of people who are attending, I mean, small, but still dramatic, the proportion, the people who are sick are really avoiding the hospital. Um, and that could be a huge issue if it persists, because these are people who probably need care um, who are not attending. Mm. And that's not because there's no room in the hospital. That's because they're scared of going in or leaving their homes. Yeah, no, quite the opposite. I mean, while the, you know, while we have had COVID-19 cases, um, these hospitals have not been the centers. They're not the infectious disease centers. Um, so the number of COVID-19 cases has been very small. But people aren't attending because they're very afraid. And that's true. You can see that very clearly. As soon as um, the lockdown started, as soon as the government started implementing measures, or even a little bit before the government started implementing measures, uh, people just, the number just dropped like a rock. Mm. Mm. Well, that's bad. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be potentially uh, a very impactful study because it, it, we can say, you know, a lot of people have been making this, uh, has, have been saying this for the last few weeks that numbers are down everywhere. Or G- I'm sure every GP knows that their practice is less busy right now than it usually is. Mm. But to see the figures, it's, it's pretty stark. Um, and I've heard that this is actually the case for a lot of conditions that you wouldn't expect. So, for example, um, I've heard that the uh, myocardial infarct numbers are down as well, which is, you know, people having heart attacks, not coming to the hospital, which seems ludicrous, but... I mean, apparently this is some mostly overseas, but it's it's happening in some places. Yeah, I can see why that would happen. People being scared to leave the house, um, not really sure what they're meant to be doing. Uh, yeah, not really aware that they can call up a doctor and get telehealth advice. Well, thanks, Gid, for coming on the show. It was super interesting to hear your insights, and sorry for asking you to predict the future. I know that that's um not something that epidemiologists like to do (laughs) but it is interesting to get a little sort of insight into what one person thinks might happen it was my pleasure it's always fun to come on the podcast